0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, as when I mentioned, my name is Jason. Uh, Jason Yum. I am a, an ordained minister in the same denomination as the table. And uh, as when mention, I mentioned, yeah, I uh, I do live. You know, I, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna time myself today. Um, <coughs> I live in the I live in the East Bay. Um, I like to c- describe Oakland as just one giant block party. So if you guys are ever there, you know, look me up and we'll hang out. Um, it's nice to be in the West Bay this morning, um, and truly it is a privilege, privilege to be back. Uh, I, as I mentioned last week, I'm a big fan of The Table. I mentioned that if I had thought about planting my own church at some point, it would have been called The Table, so Troy just took the name and he beat me to it, so i got to find a different name. Um, I won't be planting a church anytime soon, though, so I'll be okay. Um, so here we are. We are in a second part of a three-part series of just looking at Daniel chapters 1, 2, and 3. Um, after I finish next week, you, you get the privilege of hearing from a good friend of mine, Cheryl Thompson, and she's going to be talking about see what else, how we see Christ in the Old Testament. So we are doing this deep dive, a deep, you know, just uh, like a long drink of cold water from the Old Testament um, next couple weeks. Last week, we talked about how, in Daniel chapter 1, we are studying about the Israelites in exile. They've been taken captive in the land of Babylon. And I wanted to point out that if there was any era of biblical history or any era of Israelite history that we, today, should really most resonate with, it's it's not that it really is should it should be this exilic period it's not the israelites under slavery it's not the israelites in power and when they have the whole their own nation and promised land we should most resonate with the israelites in this time of babylon and i was trying to point out how this particular period for the israelites was a form of spiritual discipline they were, they were trying to they're supposed to be wrestling with this question of who are we? You know, Who are we when we've lost the house of God? The temple has been destroyed. Who are we when we have lost Jerusalem, the crown jewel of the nation of Israel? Who, do, who are we when we've lost our entire nation ourselves, when we have been displaced? And we talked about last week how Babylon is this non... It's not a neutral force. They are a hostile force. They have these assimilationist Pressures And in, in, in Daniel, they show that only you, like, you matter only if you're young, if you're well-educated. You're, you matter if you have a certain type of pedigree. Uh, and in modern-day Babylon, I do establish that we live in a modern-day Babylon. Modern-day Babylon says the same thing, that you matter if you're young. You matter if you're well-educated. You matter, you matter if you have a certain type of job, or if you are of a certain gender or a certain race. This is what modern-day Babylon and its assimilationist pressures do to us. And so, in in the midst of this, both from the pressures outside, but also the Babylon that's in our own hearts, because we're really good at tempting ourselves this way, we need to wrestle with this question of who are we? Who are we? And we need to remember, really, the the big point of Daniel is remember who you are and remember whose you are, that you belong to God, that you are a child of God, that you are a Christian. So what I want to do today is continue to f- just focus on that and, and help us figure out who are we in the face of not just pr- assimilation as pressures, but who are we in the face of people who have tremendous might and power and also in the face of tyranny. So this is what we're going to talk about today in Daniel chapter 2. So uh, you'll, you can read along with me in the bulletin. This is a really long chapter. I apologize. Um Actually, no, I'm not really that sorry. It's, it's, good. it's a good chapter, um, but I'm going to break it up for us. We're going to read the first 12 verses in the first half of the sermon, and then we'll focus on the rest of it later. So just read the first 12, well, read along with me as I read aloud uh, um, for the first 12 verses. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded... Let the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or a Chaldean. The the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Whew. Here's Nebuchadnezzar. right? And so in, in, in chapter one, he's actually, he's mentioned, but he's kind of behind the scenes. He's not really, you know, you don't see him up front, but in chapter two, you see him center stage and you see what kind of man Nebuchadnezzar is. And just if I could characterize Nebuchadnezzar, very simply, he is a man of might right a man of might this is only the second year of king nebuchadnezzar's reign as we see in, in verse 1 but really it, what that really means is this is the second year of him being a victorious conqueror he is reigning why he's reigning because he has already conquered so many other people before this before even daniel chapter 1 nebuchadnezzar comes in and he takes over all of the assyrians and then he conquers the Egyptians. And then he conquers Judah and Jerusalem, right? And so he has been on this war terror, and now he is reigning, and like kind of reigning in much power. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 7, he is called a destroyer, a destroyer of nations, right? So he is not just a man of might, he is a man of tremendous might, tremendous power. He is the king of the Babylonian Empire, that they are the major military power, the major political power in the world at the time. So he is a man of might. Nebuchadnezzar is a man clothed in immense power. But more than that, he's a man of might. He is also a man of brilliance, achievement, and vision, particularly on the battlefield. And we saw last week how he has this Kind of a nefarious yet brilliant plan to take over all of the israelites and help them forget their identity give them new names and give them a chaldean education he is a man of brilliance but here's the thing um men of might men i guess and women too of 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 might and brilliance and vision um, they also tend to be world-class jerks right and so here we have Nebuchadnezzar, and we've just read this in verses 1 through 12, that he has these three interactions, and in each interaction he's just getting more and more unreasonable, just getting more and more angry. And the Chaldeans are just, they're just begging with him, Please be reasonable. Give us a chance to try to interpret your dream. And Nebuchadnezzar just gets more and more unreasonable. The more might and brilliance and vision a person can have, very oftentimes they become more and more unreasonable, often jerks. Uh, for example, uh, the late, great Steve Jobs, a man of brilliance, a man of much vision, a man who of much ingenuity. He was a product genius, and we revere his geniusness and the, the, a lot of the products that he has put into play. Well, there was this, um, uh, an article in Forbes magazine that came out after Steve Jobs' death, and it, it interviewed this close friend of Steve Jobs. And he spoke only under the cover of anonymity, but he said this about Steve Jobs, and this was a good, a good friend, mind you. He says that Steve Jobs was a major world-class jerk. This friend actually would wonder if Steve Jobs wasn't at least a borderline sociopath. He was described as highly demanding and even abusive People rallied around Steve Jobs' genius and accepted his demands and abuse because Steve was really smarter than everyone else in the room, or at least he wanted people to think that way, right? Here's the thing with Steve Jobs. He was so busy changing the world that minor annoyances, like people's feelings, didn't fit into his plan, right? And so that's Steve Jobs, a man of much brilliance, but kind of a jerk, right? He didn't care for others. And that was just Steve Jobs as the CEO of an organization. Here we've got Nebuchadnezzar as the CEO of an entire empire with even more might, even more brilliance than Steve Jobs. And how much more of a jerk would Nebuchadnezzar be? And you kind of see it. He's becoming, he just becomes extremely unreasonable and almost hysterical in his interactions with the Chaldeans this sermon this today's lesson is not about how to deal with jerks it's not how to deal with bosses who are jerks right that's a whole another lesson we could talk about that later um, this real lesson is actually about how to deal with a tyrant how to deal with someone who is full of anger and rage nebuchadnezzar is a rageaholic in verse 12 nebuchadnezzar it says that nebuchadnezzar was angry and very furious He commands all the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. He's commanding a genocide, right? He threatens the Chaldeans. He says, I will tear you limb from limb, and I will destroy you houses. If you cannot meet my unreasonable demand, and you know what? That threat has force behind it. He can actually get that done. He even orders it to be done. So Nebuchadnezzar is a man of might, a man of brilliance, achievement, vision, but he's also extremely mistrustful, suspicious, unreasonable. Yet even more so, he's actually very angry, furious, arbitrary, malevolent, irascible, maniacal, tyrannical, and tremendously violent. He's all those things, and more and more power that he has, he becomes more and more delusional. There's this great quote by the British politician, Lord Acton, that says, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. So he's basically saying the more power you have, the crazier you could become, the more mad you can become. King Nebuchadnezzar has so much power that he's truly just the mad king. Nebuchadnezzar is a man of might, he's a jerk, he's a tyrant. But there's one more thing that's going on with him he's tremendously insecure. In this passage, we read about Nebuchadnezzar and he's being troubled by a dream. And you might think, ah, poor baby. Poor little Nebi. He's, he's being troubled. He had a bad dream. He he's has a nightmare. But it's more than that, actually. That word troubled really has this like constant, consistent meaning that he is constantly and consistently disturbed, beaten persistently. And what is he beaten up by? What is he disturbed by? He's disturbed by his inner doubts, his fear. He's a man who has... A Tremendous fear and insecurity. And what is his biggest fear? Well, just like other people in power, their biggest fear is losing it all. His fear is about losing all of his power. And so we'll find out later on a little bit that the dream that he has is is about dreaming about what's going to happen next, what happens after him. He's afraid of losing it all. And there's this thing that happens. People who at least appear to have power and might they often are very clearly aware, aware of just the fact that they might not actually have it. Well, the people who actually have power, who strove to have power of their own like, will and force, they, they know how much it took to get there, so they know how quickly they can lose it. So there's this thing that people who have power, who are seemingly invincible, they are actually aware of just how invincible and vulnerable they are. He is a man of brilliance, achievement, vision, but he's also mistrustful, suspicious, unreasonable. He is angry, furious, arbitrary, malevolent, irascible, maniacal, tyrannical, violent, but he's also haunted, fearful, and tremendously insecure. At the core of who King Nebuchadnezzar is, is this trembling, fearful, uncertain, anxious person. But if you think about it, that's why he's so terrifying. He is a man of so much power, but it's it's his insecurity that terrifies people because you don't know how he's going to react. You don't know what he's going to do next. You don't know if you're gonna catch him on a good day or if you're gonna catch him on a bad day, right? He's tremendously insecure. I'm gonna pause for a moment um, and just kind of point out that we might be looking at Nebuchadnezzar, and we might be thinking that he was a tyrant king that you know, lived centuries ago, and so it doesn't really affect us. But the reality is, we're not so far removed from that. We have had despots and tyranny and tyrants in our day. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that Adolf Hitler was a thing. Right? It wasn't so long ago that Lenin or Stalin or Pol Pot wasn't long ago, I talked about North Korea last week, wasn't that wasn't that long ago that Kim Il-sung was the, t- the tyrant dictator of North Korea, and then he passed that on to his son, Kim Jong-il, who then passed it on to his son, Kim Jong-un, so there is this thread of tyranny in one country. We, if you read the news about the Philippines, you might read the stories of Rodrigo Duterte, the, the, the president there, and how he's just pretty much called it an open game to hunt People who have been addicted to various substances, and they are just being murdered on the street because the president wills it so. Tyranny exists today; it exists today. We're not so far removed from it. And uh, I was kind of wavering about whether or not I should bring this up, um, but I'm just going to—I'm going to bring it up. Um, There is a form of tyranny that's not just in people, in just one leader. There, was, there, was, uh, there are powers of tyranny, and I'll just call one out. White nationalism is a form of tyranny. And, you know, we, we, talk, we prayed about it a little bit earlier, but when I read about what El Paso, and I'll just say allegedly how that shooter was uh, released a white nationalist type of manifesto, allegedly. And the one in Dayton, we don't know if that was related, but can we just point out that that is a danger? <laughs> that That is a force that needs to be denounced, that it is not good, right? And, you know, there's so much to be said about that, and we'll probably, maybe the pulpit is not the best place for it, but we'll talk, we can talk more about that later. But at the very least, let me just point out tyranny exists today. Tyrannical forces, dangerous forces exist today. And now we need to think about how do we react to this? How do we respond in the face of these kinds of forces? Well, one way that we could respond, it's not really a good way to respond, is to just cater to it. You know, cater to the power. The Chaldeans in verse 4, they go up to Nebuchadnezzar, and what do they say? They say, O king, live forever. Right? Just keep doing what you do. But that's not a good way to respond. Let's look at another way. Let's read um, verses 13 through 30, the rest of the passage here, and we're going to see Daniel. Uh, Daniel is... And if Nebuchadnezzar is a, is a man of might in this passage, Daniel is the man of wisdom. And I want you to focus, it's a long passage, but I want you to focus on just how calm, collected, and wise Daniel is in responding to this tremendous threat. So starting from verse 13. <coughs> so the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise man of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came." Came thoughts of those who would be after this, uh, of thoughts of what would be after this. And he, re- he who reveals mysteries, made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have, that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Amen. Right. Whew! That was a long passage. Thank you for bearing with me on that. Um, but do you see how he responds to Nebuchadnezzar? He doesn't say, O King, live forever. He doesn't cater to him. Right? But he's coming in, and he's, he's ready to die. I mean, He's he'll already be sentenced to death, so he's trying to maybe redeem his life and the life of his friends. And, but do you see how calm and collected he is? He is, the, he is the exact opposite of King Nebuchadnezzar. He is not unreasonable or insecure. Daniel responds in in verse 14. He says that he replied with prudence and discretion when he was talking to the captain Ariok. He is a man who models wisdom and piety. He is shrewd and astute before the captain. He is bold and confident before King Nebuchadnezzar. He is decisive and assured when when he brings his explanation. But he doesn't cater to Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't say, O king, live forever. Basically, he's saying, if I can paraphrase the interpretation of the dream, he's basically saying, oh king, you're not going to live forever. right? You're not going to live forever, and, ki- and neither will your kingdom. And he's saying this in front of the insecure tyrant. How on earth can he act like this? How can he have such boldness and confidence in front of this terrifying tyrant of a king? Well, the whole lesson of Daniel. He knows who he is, and he knows whose he is. He knows that he is a child of God, that he belongs to Yahweh. You know, his name, Daniel, it means God is my judge. And so he can speak the truth to Nebuchadnezzar because he knows that Nebuchadnezzar is not his judge. God is. He knows that his life is in God's hands and not Nebuchadnezzar's. And where does he get his wisdom? I mean, he's still a youth, right? He was a youth back in Daniel chapter 1. He's still a youth in Daniel chapter 2. So he didn't just get it from world experience. He is a man of wisdom because he knows to whom to go for wisdom. He knows that all wisdom comes from God himself. He knows that wisdom and might are God's. He says in verse 20, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. So Daniel knows with such assurance that God is truly the source of all might and wisdom. And that really is the key of this whole chapter. This whole chapter is being fundamentally clear about where power and wisdom come from, and particularly power. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar has this completely distorted understanding of his own power he thinks his power is unlimited he thinks it came from his own prerogative he thinks it is uh, it's his own will and any people and any pe- think any people who think they have power because of that then they are delusional it's a it's a view on power that is fundamentally based on lies any power that claims that kind of might is destructive. This view on power leads to being unreasonable, tyrannical, and incredibly insecure. Because all might and wisdom comes from God. So we need to be able to reframe all of power and all of might under the context of God's greater power. It is the Lord who let Nebuchadnezzar take over Jerusalem. And Daniel says it himself it is the Lord who removes kings and sets up kings. So what I want to do with, my rest, with the rest of my time here is just talk about God as the God of might and wisdom. How often do we really think about God as the almighty, the all-powerful? We throw these words out, almighty, all-powerful, but do we really think about it? Um, there's this wonderful U2 song. It's a lesser-known song called uh, Stand-Up Comedy, and there's this great line. It says, uh, Stop helping God across the road like a little old lady right? It's a good line, right? Because don't we do that? Don't we think that God needs our help? Don't we think that God can't do anything without us sometimes? That, or if we don't get it done, that God won't get it done. Stop helping God across the road like a little old lady. Stop viewing him as powerless when he is truly the all-powerful. Um, there's this um, one quote that I keep going back to from Pastor John Piper from the sermon I heard back when I was in college. And I take a lot of um, comfort in this. Let me t- look, this is what John Piper says about God and his might. He says, God is almighty. We are not dealing with the mere president of the United States, the mere premier of China. We are dealing here with the person whose power includes all the power of the political realm, all the power of the electromagnetic realm, all the power of the atomic realm, and all the power of the gravitational pull of the biggest stars in the universe, and all the power that upholds the universe by the might of his word. We are dealing here with what's called almighty, omnipotent, absolute sovereignty. How often do we think about that? How often do we think about God as almighty, omnipotent, and absolutely sovereign? And when you think about that, when you meditate upon that, when you reflect upon that, the only proper response is truly awe and fear. Daniel is not afraid of Nebuchadnezzar because he's more afraid of God Almighty." But here's the thing, I spent the whole first half of the sermon talking about the more power you have, the crazier you might become, right? But what about God? If He is all-powerful, is He crazy? In other words, can you trust Him, or do you trust Him? And this is where you need to realize that God is not just the Almighty, but He's also the all-wise. He is the God of might and And wisdom in all perfection. He is not a jerk. He is not a tyrant. God is not insecure. He's not mistrustful, suspicious, unreasonable. He's not arbitrary, malevolent, irascible, maniacal. He's not tyrannical or violent. He is not haunted or fearful or insecure. He is none of those things. But he is angry. He does get angry. And sometimes we think about that. We sung about it in um, in Christ Alone, um, the wrath of God. God does get angry, and are we okay with that? Um, there is this uh, great scene in the movie uh, Lincoln with um, Daniel Day Lewis, and here we are learning about Honest Abe, and he's kind of always been seen as like this, kind of this shyer, diminutive, you know, more timid type of type of president. But there's this great scene where he just gets straight-up angry. He slams his hand on the table and he's saying, now, now, now. We need to pass a constitutional provision now to eradicate all and abolish slavery. And there is this great scene where people are asking him, like, well, he's, he's telling that we just need to get two more votes. Two more votes stand in our way. And then he tells his aides, he tells a congressman, he says, you've got a night, a day, and a night, several perfectly good hours. Now get the hell out of here and get them. And then Congressman James Alley, he says, yes, but how? And there's a scene that, it, it, that he, it rubs me the wrong way, rubs others the wrong way. Lincoln, he stands up and he says, buzzards guts, man. I am the president of the United States of America, clothed in immense power you will procure me these votes. And I saw that scene and I was like, I can't be right, that can't be real, because Honest Abe doesn't seem like he would, a man who would do that. Uh, and then there was this article about this, saying, "Oh, yeah, they, they doubt whether or not this actually happened, but that actual quote of being clothed in immense power comes straight from Congressman James Alley himself. He wrote that down, that that is what Lincoln said. And so we need to wrestle, why does that rub us the wrong way? Because we think a man like Honest Abe is, in, is incapable of being angry. So sometimes, we again, that's treating God like the little old lady, that God is incapable of being angry. But why are we okay with it? Why should we be okay with it? It's because Lincoln was getting angry at the right thing. He was directing his wrath and his anger at an incredible injustice. He was, in, he was directing it at the disease, the pestilence, that it was slavery in America. And so we can be okay with wrath and anger because when it's pointed at the right thing, God gets angry. But what does he point his wrath and anger to? He points it at the injustices of the world. He points it at the sins of tyrants. And he's rightfully angry. And we should be angry too. But one more thing is, he's also rightfully angry at our own sins. At our own sins as well. And all of the might, all the power in the world is, be- and that is being channeled through that, direct, that anger towards the sins of this world. But how, where does he show his wisdom? God shows it by directing his anger and pouring out all of his might, not upon us, but upon his own son, Jesus Christ. In verse 11, the Chaldeans say this wonderful prophecy that no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, Jesus is God dwelling with flesh. The fullness of God in helpless babe. The, all of the might in the universe at his fingertips is now in Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do? He says at any moment he can call down an army of angels. But he doesn't. Instead, he allows himself to be subjected to the forces of this world. He allows himself to lose his life on the cross. Why? So that we who believe in him, who place our faith in him, can have deliverance and be rescued from ourselves. If you ever doubt God's wisdom, and if you ever doubt that you can trust him, look to Jesus Christ the true man of might, and the true man of wisdom. Look to him, study him, and you will see that you can trust him. And here's the thing, Jesus Christ is the true man of might, the true man of wisdom, and the beauty of it all is that he is for you. That he is on your side. All of the might in the universe is for you. So how do we respond in the face of tyrannical forces? We can respond boldly. We can denounce it. Why? Because our lives are in God's hands. So all goes back to remember who you are and whose you are. You belong to Yahweh, you belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to the true man of might and the true man of wisdom. So let us go forth boldly, denounce evil when we see it. Show the wrath of God at the things that are the, injusti- the injustices of this world. Um, I was thinking about closing us in prayer, but I think I want to call an audible here. As we were singing In Christ Alone earlier, I just couldn't help but think that was like the perfect song to go with this, right? Fullness of God and helpless babe, right? And we can trust in Him. So, Juan, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you mind? Can you lead us in the song one more time? And then we'll go into communion right after. Thank you.